I mean, it's easy to say, um, you know, the, the, the death and resurrection and the nature of Christ, the fact that he died for our sins, rose again, and I trust in him, and, and then say, there's the gospel. And I would agree with that. But when you look at the scripture, you find that the, if you pare the gospel down to the smallest possible gospel, it will always feel like more needs to be said because more does need to be said. Even, even when the apostles went and preached the gospel with just like a tiny little window of time to talk to somebody, they could have given them something to respond to, but nobody would call that the fullness of the gospel of Christ. It would, but it would still be saving. And that's kind of what we need to see, um, a saving gospel. Let me, um, share with you a scripture on this. Here we go. Um, that'll come in just a minute before we do that. Let's look at Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel uh, for it is, let me fix the screen here, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So let me put it this way. Nothing counts as gospel unless it's the power of God to salvation when you believe that thing. This is why actions alone do not preach the gospel. Because someone can't just look at you and go, I believe you're a wonderful person who loves me. Well, that's not the power of God to their salvation. Believing that you're a sincere religious person does not save anybody. Believing in Jesus does. This is why data, information, you know, truths have to be imparted. And those truths aren't separate from relational aspects. It's rather they're the avenue through which we know Christ and how we find out about him. So yeah, it's not a gospel if it doesn't include that. But let's look real quick. I'll spend a little more time on this first question that I will on all the others, but let's look quick at some examples in the book of Acts that actually talk about some of these gospel presentations. Have you ever done this? You ever looked at the book of Acts where they're actually preaching the gospel to people and asked yourself, what did they include? What was, what was needed in their gospel presentation? So we can look at Acts chapter two, but we're going to actually go to Acts chapter 10, verse 36. And this is where we have the gospel being preached. Um, I'm going to read through verse 43 here. Let's let's notice the elements, and then I'll, I'll remind you after I've read, the, read this section what those elements were. So as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news, that's the gospel, of peace through Jesus Christ, there's a great summary of the gospel, but there's more data we need. I get peace with God through Jesus. Um, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know that what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. So there's shared knowledge with the audience that Peter's talking to here. They actually already know about a lot of the, the data of Jesus's early life, of his early ministry, I should say. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and in power, and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed, and this is something you don't usually hear, appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. There's an interesting gospel element. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here we have the good news of peace, that we can have peace, not just the peace of God, like your heart feels at peace with life or something, but rather reconciliation because I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner who stands before a holy God. Jesus is the one who's going to judge the, judge the world, the living and the dead. To have peace with him, I need to know, right? Jesus did good. He healed. He overcame Satan. That's like actually what we read about in the gospels themselves, right? Jesus died. He rose on the third day. 
He's the judge of the living and the dead. And the Old Testament prophesies about him. That's the last verse there. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This element about prophecy, about Jesus being the judge, um, these are, and, and even Jesus healing and overcoming Satan are elements that are usually not present in modern gospel presentations, but they seem to be typically, not always, but typically present in first century gospel presentations, something to be aware of. Then if you believe, you're forgiven, right? You get forgiveness of sins, right? When you believe in Christ, that's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Here's another example of this. Here's Acts 26. Now this is different. Because in Acts 26, verse 19 through 23, um, it's Paul now speaking, and he's speaking to King Agrippa. And Agrippa also has a Jewish background. The first audience we just heard, they already knew some things about Jesus. So here, you know, maybe this is presenting the gospel to a culture that has some knowledge of Christ or some knowledge, in this case of Agrippa, of Judaism, but not as much of Jesus. So, um, Let's read through here. This is what Paul says. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. Okay, this is what Paul says to Jews and Gentiles. This is interesting because, yes, things do shift in the information, like the sort of common knowledge. When I talk to a Jewish person who has a, a background in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, I can use that in preaching Christ. When I talk to someone who doesn't have that background, about a Bible background in some sense, I can't use that as easily, right? So, but what does he do to, to all groups? He tells them that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. The idea of repentance, of, of, of turning from sin, that is an essential part of the gospel. Um, in the gospel of John, it's included in the idea of belief. Belief is this sort of turning from and to, uh, but it's, it's, it's definitely there. Now, it doesn't mean you're earning your salvation through acts of goodness you do, it means you're sincerely turning to God. That's all. Remember, this is relational. I'm turning to God in relationship. I'm saying, God, I want you. I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want your forgiveness and grace. This carries with it a turning from the rebellion against God that I have in my life. So um, it doesn't mean you're going to be sinless and perfect, but yeah, there's an actual repentance. Um, for this reason, Paul says, for this reason, the Jews ceased to uh, seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here to testify both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Again, he connects the Old Testament to it. That the Christ must suffer by being, and, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. So you have Jesus, you have the Old Testament connection to Jesus, you have, um, that's something we often don't hear in, in gospel presentations, admittedly. Um, then we have Jesus as the son of God, his miracles and exorcisms, his wrongful death, um, his resurrection, the coming judgment, and repentance and faith in Christ. These things are all elements that are real consistent. Now, there is kind of one exception, and that is when there's purely a Gentile audience in Acts 17. Let's look at Acts 17. Um Another gospel presentation here by Paul the Apostle, and he's standing in an entirely Gentile crowd, and he's preaching the gospel to a bunch of non, uh, non-believers, right? And they're not just not Christians, they're not Jews either. They don't have that Old Testament background. Notice how the message changes and how Paul br- spends a lot of time preaching something he never even bothers, to, none of the apostles preach at any other point when they're preaching to Jewish audiences. And it's about the nature of God. Okay, so here we go. 
Um, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. They had many idols. It was a bunch of paganism going on. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So Paul seizes on this reality that they realize there's, there's probably a God they don't know about. And so then Paul goes, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, totally unlike any pagan God they believe in, right? God made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Let me pause before I read on and just suggest this. Paul, seeing people who don't even have a beginning point of belief in God, starts with belief in God, not Jesus. This is unique to me. It's really interesting, and it fits well with my understanding of how to preach the gospel to a crowd who simply does not, either doesn't understand who God is or doesn't believe in God. You start with God, right? You, you, you talk about how he created all things. He's the omniscient, om omnipresent, almighty God, right? Whether you use those terms or not, you're talking about the God who made all things, and he made us, and he's sovereign, right? He determines our allotted periods, right? He's sovereign. God is in control, and there's, there's a, a day of judgment. We'll talk about this here in a moment. Um, but here's something else that Paul says that rules out deism. It's not just this deistic God, like there's just a God out there. Verse 27, he goes that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That God has set up the world so that men might might search for him, might want to know him, and might might seek and find him. Then he says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. I, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Um, offspring here being different than children. Um, but it's the idea that, uh, yeah, God knows us intimately. He made us and my existence is sustained by him. He didn't just create me. He sustains me. So he's really not far. What needs to happen is the seeking of my heart, seeking after God. But that's not the whole story because this would just be bland monotheistic religion, right? Uh, being then God's offspring, he wants to correct their paganism. We ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, now what? Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Again, that idea of repentance, it's in every gospel uh, presentation. or It needs to be the idea of repentance. <clears throat> um, this is, people are allergic to this nowadays. I, I think that if we don't, if, if in the mind of the person I'm talking to, they're not thinking of repentance as the response then I need to make them think of it. <laughs> That's just part of, part of the message, part of the core. Because he has fixed a day on which he will what? Judge the world in righteousness. So there's repentance and judgment. But now Jesus comes into the picture. How is he going to judge the world? By a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul establishes the existence of God, his nature, his sovereignty, the ability to know him, the fact of future judgment, and then shows that Jesus has died for us, rose again, and then he gets interrupted. Would Paul? What, what else would Paul have said? Um, well, he said more, at least to those who were interested, because it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So that shut down the moment. He wasn't able to continue preaching. It seems like it was truncated. It was slowed, slowed down. What I'm suggesting here is this. 
basic ideas of the gospel are um, the existence of God is, is, is needed if you don't already believe it. Um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, we, we want to pr promote that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the Christ, the one who's coming. If they aren't familiar with the Old Testament, you might save that for when you have the time to share it with them. But you definitely, definitely have to get into the idea that there is future, future judgment, that um, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and that faith in him is how you can be forgiven. So you, you could even include that. I mean, you probably should include that Jesus is the son of God. He's the special one of God. Interestingly, in these initial gospel presentations, I don't know that the deity of Christ is, is commonly promoted as much as I see that as a central doctrine of who Jesus is. Denial of the deity of Christ, I think, is a denial of a, uh, it is ultimately ends up being denial of, of the nature and the person of Christ. But that doesn't mean you have to know everything about Jesus to believe in him at that moment. So yeah, um, Jesus died and rose again. Repent and believe. But the, for background knowledge, if you don't know about God, I got to talk about that. If you do know about the Old Testament in some sense, I want to talk about the prophecy that's that's going on there as well. Anyway, I hope that helps. All right, let's go to question number two. And this is coming in from uh, Drewby's dad. All right, Drewby's dad says, um, why is modalism considered such heresy? I think it's incorrect, but many question the very salvation of those who hold to this doctrine. How vital is the correct understanding of the Trinity? So um, I've given this a lot of thought and I, I haven't given it enough thought, but I have given it a lot of thought. So Drewby's dad, um, what I will say is I kind of agree with you. <laughs> um, I don't want to by caveat, I don't want to give any sort of room or wiggle room for modalism as though it is an approved Christian teaching. That is wrong, okay? Modalism seems very much false. But let me share with you guys why I would not um, say that someone who's modalist is therefore unsaved or not Christian. Um, and, and maybe it depends on degree. Maybe there's some, the person promoting it versus the person gullibly believing it, right? There's These are two different kinds of people. The, the teacher of a thing is not the same as the person who's just believing that because they've misunderstood or something. Um, but uh, modalism, it affirms the deity of Christ, right? It affirms monotheism. Those are two pretty central elements. I would say if you deny one of those things, you're you're not you're not Christian. But modalism is this belief about the Trinity that the that I'll put it crudely to be simple about it. But the Father becomes the Son bec and becomes the Spirit, and these are just different modes that God operates in. And so this is this is not true. It seems obviously false, right? Jesus prays and talks about prays to the Father, talks to the Father, talks about the Father as a, as a separate person than Himself. But yet we have this ironclad pillar of monotheism in scripture. So we can't believe here be promoting multiple gods. Then we have this other pillar of plain teaching in scripture that Jesus is God. So you put all that together and you go, well, there's one God, right? But the father and the son and the spirit are different persons, but because they are, I should say the father is God. The son is God. They're God's a clumsy way to put it. The father is God. The son is God. The spirit is God. Therefore we have three persons, one God. And that means it's to me, um, th this, this idea of the Trinity forced upon us by scripture. I, I don't see any way around it, but modalism, it seems like I could chalk this up to big time confusion about, about who God is, but not a central denial of the nature of God. Now, other, other things like say, uh, tritheism, Christ is God 
separate God, a different God than the Father and a different God than the Holy Spirit. And we have like a tritheism thing. That is um, a fundamental denial of the nature of, of God. Or denying the deity of Christ is to deny the very person who you have to believe. I have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And I'm denying a central element, probably the most wonderful and re real thing about who Jesus is, is that he is God. And so those to me would be gross heresy. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, the more I've thought about it, and I'm open for correction, guys. If you want to offer me correction, whether that's in the form of comments or or a video response, long as it's, it's as long as you get to the point. <laughs> Anybody who makes a video response to me, just know this: if you if it's a rambling response, I'll watch the first couple minutes and then I I, I move on. <laughs> not not to be rude. I'm not mad at you. I just it, I just I get those responses and I have to decide when to watch. So if you just get right to the point, then you know I'm I'm very much open to correction on this. I do not consider modalism a, a damnable heresy for those who believe it. I think those who teach it actively, it starts to become a bigger issue. And just like scripture says, those who teach are judged more strictly. Um, yeah. All right. Ivan J has a question. My heart is hardened. Ivan says I'm backslidden, a carnal Christian, whatever you want to call it. I'm so far from God right now. I want to love him, but I don't, I'm afraid of hell. What can I do to heal? Um, Ivan, I'm going to offer you several, you know, thoughts on this. First off, if you were completely hardened, you, I really don't think you would have shared this comment. I don't think you would have put this question up there and said, Hey, can you help me? I don't think that would happen if you were really that hard, if you were just solidified, totally hardened in that sense. Um, but I, but I feel for you and I, I understand what you're going through. Um, James. In the book of James, it talks about weeping and wailing and mourning and let your laughter be turned to uh, to mourning, right? Your joy to gloom. That there's this, this idea that I stop making light of my sin issues. And now you might say, well, my heart isn't like, I just look at my heart. Hey, would you cry already? Would you be upset? Would you be bothered? And that isn't happening. So here's where in my own life, very practically, this has helped me is when I pray that God would break me over my sin. Lord, soften my heart. And this would be a prayer I encourage you to pray. God, soften my heart. Open me up to see how bad my sin is. Help me just pull the calluses off of my eyes so that I can see the problems with my sin so that I can so that I can turn from it rightly, so that I can look at it clearly. Um, also, obviously, you, you, you turn from the sin in your practice because the, the more you move away from those sins, the more you will, you'll have new perspective, right? You'll see it for what it was. Um, an example of this, maybe in a good way, a bad example of this, is um, uh, when I'm cooking in the house and then I leave the house for a little while and come back, I, I smell all the all the smells, right? Like I'm like, oh man, it smells good in here. But I was desensitized because I was right there. And that's we're like that with smells in general, right? So with sin, you can't feel how bad it is. You can't smell how bad it is because you're still in it. As you move away from it, your heart will become softer to it. You will get new perspective and you will have that, that right attitude towards it. And so, um, finally, what I'll suggest is radical life change, radical life change. Don't do little tiny adjustments. Oh, I'll try not to do that. I'll try not to do that. Radical life change where Jesus says like, Hey, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now I have a whole study I'd recommend you listen to on that. It, it, you're not supposed to literally gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. No one in the New Testament church did that. Um, Jesus is very clearly speaking hyperbolically, but the, the, this is what I mean. I'm taking that that verse to say, hey, 
radical response to sin. If there's a relationship that is just steeped in sin, um, cut it off or radically change the way that relationship functions. And whatever it is, whatever the thing is that you're doing, that is like the baby steps of compromise in your life, cut those things off, cut those things off. And as you do that, you will find your own heart renewed. Read the word, whether you feel like it or not. Pray, what, whether you get some great benefit in prayer, some emotional benefit or not. Worship God, whether you have a sense that this is like a wonderful thing or not. You just do the right things. because. Um, and I love this analogy. I share it a lot. If you think of yourself as a train, your heart, that you're talking about your, 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 um, your hard-heartedness, that sort of thing, that's the caboose of the train. Right, Faith needs to be the thing that drives the train. Faith and choices you make. And when a train is going down the wrong path, it'll make a turn to go down the right path. In this case, you turning from those sin issues, Ivan, and refocusing your life on Christ and being radical in your, in your obedience to Jesus. You'll make that turn. Your heart probably will not make the turn right away. It's the caboose. Trains can be very long. And so you could be going the right way for a while before finally your heart makes the turn too and you start to feel refreshed and you start to feel clear-minded and your heart starts to become sensitive again. So make the right choices. Don't focus on your heart. Focus on obedience to Christ in faith and wait for your heart to come around. Let's look at question number four. This is from uh, Dangeroso who says, since Jesus was fully man, as well as fully God, according to the hypostatic union, how did he not inherit Adam's sin that all men inherit according to Psalm 51.5? Okay, I'm going to have an annoying answer to people on this one. <laughs> um, and I want to suggest something. Um, my understanding of this is not typical. I do not speak for the, the, the church as a whole or, or, or something like that, okay? I'm not typical here. And I could I could be wrong in my understanding of these things, so but let me let me first offer a more a more typical answer and then I'll then I'll offer um, mine. Okay, so Psalm fifty one five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is one of the proof texts for um, the um, the inherited guilt that we have from Adam, the idea of sin nature. Okay, so I do believe in sin nature, but I define it differently than a lot of Christians do. I want you guys to be aware, okay? And I have videos on this. I, I talk about this in detail in, I will actually, or maybe one of the mods, you can link it. I did two videos on infants, do infants who die go to heaven. The second video is all these theological controversies that come up when that topic arises. That second video, I talk about sin nature and I go through it in detail. I think that this is not a great proof text for the doctrine of sin nature as guilt. And you could look at it two different ways. Sin nature is either guilt, like I actually sinned in Adam, like I'm guilty of what Adam did, or it could be like a proclivity, which is what I'm inclined to think it is, um, a proclivity that I'm born with that gears me towards sin. Okay, so now if you think it's guilt, then you have a problem with with Jesus and the Virgin and the and the humanity of Christ that, you know, hey, I mean, he can't be guilty, like he can't have actually sinned in Adam, and the the rescue for this and this works is to say, well, somehow, if with a virgin birth, that somehow created some sort of separation that's there, right? You have, you have, you know, Jesus is born of a woman, but not of a man. And so there's this this divine human mixture that's going on here where he's fully human, but but he doesn't carry that guilt. But he carries it, you know, um, he carry he bears the responsibility of our guilt. He doesn't actually have guilt for sins he's committed. Okay. 
that that can work that i mean how do i know how the how the, how the dynamics of the virgin birth operate when it comes to adam and his relation to jesus um but no one can deny that jesus is a descendant of adam and rep and is the new adam the second adam the final adam the one to represent all of us on the cross um there's another perspective though which is to say that jesus inherits sin nature which is my proclivity to sin my temptations to sin and he's tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And and so then I then to me the question resolves. So I'll read the question again so people can follow. I, I, I may have hopefully I didn't confuse people too badly there. But you said since Jesus was fully man as well as fully God, right? Or I, I like the phrase truly man and truly God. Um I like that a little better better for accuracy. So according to the hypostatic union, how did he not inherit Adam's sin that all men inherit according to Psalm fifty one five? I would just my response is, hey, there's a rescue for this. Um, but this statement of, you know, I was brought forth in iniquity my, and Sid did my mother conceive me is just insufficient to establish the doctrine that we're actually guilty of having sinned as opposed to we carry with us a nature that um, is inclined to sin. So we're still depraved, okay? I've, I've got, I'm, you know, you're not going to work your way to heaven. You're not going to earn your way to God. Check out that video. I'll put a link in the video description below to that video where I talk about that in detail. And you guys can check that out. I'll I'll put a link and I'll, I'll put um, something like um, that video where I talk about sin nature on it so you guys will know. All right, number five. Graham Pearson says, what should I say to someone who isn't impressed with the resurrection of Jesus proving that he is God? I don't think there's a better miracle explaining who God is and what he does. Well, in a sense, I, I, Graham, I would want to encourage all of us to recognize that when you meet people who aren't impressed by good arguments, you should not be impressed by that. <laughs> like, like, let this backfire a little bit on them. It's, if, if you give somebody solid, good reasons for believing in Jesus and they, and they go, yeah, I don't really, I'm not impressed by that. Don't, don't be impressed by their lack of belief. There's all kinds of things going on, whether it's confusion, bad, bad reasoning, or sinful things that we want. Um, so yeah, in a sense, it's like there's there's no magic pill where you could just sort of give it to somebody. If I give you this argument, you will become Christian, although arguments have a place in representing Christ. Um, now, that being said, what I what I would do is I would say that the resurrection of Jesus as an argument for the deity of Christ is a multi-step argument in my mind. What I have is Jesus rose from the dead. This proves that he's been vindicated. That's step one. The resurrection vindicates Jesus. That means that his teachings must have been true. The things he said about God must be true. The things he said about himself must be true. Then I can go to his, his statements about himself. I can go to other New Testament apostles and what they said about Jesus and I can show the deity of Christ including in the Old Testament. So I can I this is a but it's a multi-step argument. So um what what I would do though at that point where you say you share with somebody um the resurrection of Jesus to prove he's God you you need to dig then in their mind and ask them questions Graham. Why do you think Jesus isn't God? And find their real reasons. You may have to ask several questions to get down to this. Find their real reasons. Well, I just don't think a human could be God. Oh, so what you're saying is, even if the Bible did say it, even if Jesus said it and thought he was God and then a resurrection seems to vindicate him, seems to be God saying, hey man, he was right. Um, you're just going to reject it because you have this logical rule that you're going to 
you're going to hold over scripture. So then we need to talk about that rule now. It's not actually scripture. You know, you might you might push back and say, "Hey, is it possible that your own your own like ideas about what could or couldn't be true about Jesus might be wrong?" And you start to create, try to create some wiggle room there so that they might be open to those things. But yeah, dig in and find out what what his issues are. Um, not just why he's not impressed, but what other rules he has that are keeping him from thinking that that thing can be true. Yeah. Number six, Porfirio says, I met a Porfirio at the uh, conference last uh, week. So maybe this is you, Porfirio. I remember you, brother. Um, if it's you. <laughs> if not, I mean, there's not that many of you. So um, what did you say to Christians who, what do you say to Christians who say they have been blessed with the movie The Shack and other progressive content, even though it's filled with new age themes and progressive Christianity? Um, I split them into two categories in my head. My quick answer is this, right? I, I, there are those who will read the shack and somehow it has like little effect on them because they're so unaware of the problems. Um, let me, let me try to give an illustration. Let, let's say that I gave you directions and I was giving you directions to go somewhere and half my directions were bad. But it's a group. It's a, I'm giving a thousand people. I'm giving directions to go so right. But half of my directions are bad. The other half are good. But for some reason, a third of my crowd doesn't notice my bad directions. And they, they end up going right to the right place. And they go, oh, he really helped me out. But the people who really paid attention, they ended up in the wrong place. This is what I think happens with the shack and some of the progressive stuff. As you look at it and you go, for some of you, it wouldn't even be a third. It's probably a lower percentage than that. It's like you're so unaware of the errors that you're reading you're reading right past them you're not paying attention to them you're just sort of feeling your way through the material that it has much less of an impact on you and so i know some people who are like well i love the shack and then i look at them and i think they're actually pretty solid and orthodox i'm not even going to debate with them about it i don't think they even noticed the major issues that are there um so those same people are going to they're going to gauge the goodness of the book based upon their experience with the book not based upon the clear statements and everything it says which is probably what you and me the more analytical ones are going to be doing. So Porfirio um I'm going to ask two questions. Okay, yes, you read that. Okay, you liked it. The second question is and how have the problems and the lies that are embedded in that work how have they impacted you? And if I look and I go, they're not really impacting you. Maybe I'm having the wrong debate with that person and I need to look at other things. Um, yeah. So yeah. Now on the other hand, if you find people that like the shack because they believe some of these bad theology things that are in there, if that like, you know, the progressive Christian content, because they're believing some of the wrong theology, then you target the theology. It's not just the content, it's the beliefs, right? The belief that my inner experiences are my guiding light for my theology, even if it disagrees with scripture. This is a huge pillar that I, at least I believe for progressive Christianity. My inner experiences are my guiding light, my inner feelings about um, what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, my purpose, my sense of self. They're my guiding truth. They're my sola self. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's not how Latin works, but they're my guiding truth above scripture that's a central idea in progressive thinking and um that's something i would want to talk about um liana has a question is the man in matthew 22 verses 11 through 13 thrown out for not doing good works 
considering Revelation 19.8. All right, we got two passages of scripture. Let's read them together and then we will tackle the question. Matthew 22, 11 through 13 says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So um, this, is a, this is a parable of Jesus to catch everybody up, get on the same page. It actually starts in the beginning of the chapter. Jesus speaks to him in parables and says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he invites everybody in and the servants don't, you know, the initial people don't want to come. So he invites more people, right? He invites everybody. But then there's this one dude who shows up that doesn't have the wedding garment. And so the question is like, what is the garment supposed to represent? What is the garment? Well, maybe this is the person who wants to come and feast at the table of the, of the wedding, but he doesn't want to give honor to the son. That would, that would be how I'd interpret this person. Okay. They've, they want to feast at the table, but they're not there to honor the wedding. They're not there because they're all about the actual kingdom of God. They just want the blessings of God, but not the holiness of God and not the exclusivity of Christ. They, they want some yums, but they don't want the sun. And so that, that's how I would view that person. But you also parallel this with Revelation 19.8. And... <clears throat> And um, I'm going to back up a little bit for us here. Verse 6 in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. Here's a, here's a little freebie for you guys, a little fun thing. Um, if you've ever been to a, a real waterfall or the ocean when it's raging, the sound is insane. But what's interesting to me is we have electric um, you know, speakers and all sorts of things that can make really loud sounds now, whether it's machinery or speakers, um, going to a movie theater. But back then, like one of the loudest things you could point to would simply be the roaring of many waters. And so if you think about it that way, he's, he's just tapping into something that's like known as, um, it is so loud. Anyway, remember they did not have our uh, modern technology back then. So it's like the roaring of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Those are kind of loud. Crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. So there's a parallel, right? It's the marriage of the Son. This seems to connect at least in, in topic to the parable. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in white, uh, clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then there's a description of what that means. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay. Um, the, in this case, the, 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 there's a break from the parable. Okay. There's a similarity. It's the marriage of the, of the lamb, but the bride is the one wearing the white and wearing the fine linen here. It is not the guests. And so we suddenly have a break and that disjointed feeling tells me this is probably not commentary on the parable Jesus gave in Matthew or because it's not about the guests. This is about the bride and the bride is not an individual. Whereas Jesus' parable seems to be talking about you individually, each of you needs to be ready. You need, you need to have the, the, the wedding garments on. But different than that, this is about the corporate bride, right? And, and it's not individual works. It's the righteous deeds of the saints as a group. We're presenting our, our good deeds before Christ to say, look what we've done for you. We just want to do this to honor you and serve you. So I, to answer your question now, all that being said, 
I don't think the man is thrown out for not doing good works. I think he's thrown out for not observing the wedding, for not honoring the son, and for not being there for the right reasons. Now that may relate to good works because the same person who, who comes, to, comes to church for benefits and, and help but doesn't come to Jesus to serve him, they, they won't have the good works. But that would be a symptom, not the cause. All right, number eight. Uh, oh, that was number eight, wasn't it? Oh, I skipped two. I'm sorry about this. Um, I switched seven and eights. And so, Sarah, you, you'll be aware of that. All right, Joel Holmberg says this. Um, Hi, Pastor Mike. What are your thoughts on the Lutheran view of communion, consubstantiation in contrast with the Catholic transubstantiation? What would be a good case for an entirely symbolic view? Um, okay, that, there's, that's a big question. I'd want to refresh myself on the particulars of the of the Lutheran view. I haven't looked into it recently. Um, the, um, the, the Lutheran view is not what you would call purely symbolic or entirely symbolic view. But I also think that my view, I don't want it to be, it's not Lutheran. I have, you would call it the symbolic view, but I don't like that terminology because it devalues. Oh, it's just symbolic. It's purely symbolic. It's just symbolic. And this is the criticism against that view is that it's just symbolic. But I mean, like my wedding ring is just symbolic, but the fact that it symbolizes my marriage makes it really, really important. And so there's a sense in which you, uh, the, the Catholics and as well as many Lutherans are going to think that say in my view, I'm devaluing communion, the act because I don't think that it actually has some sort of thing going on there um, that, you know, in my understanding, the Lutheran view would be that Christ is present. He is present, though not, not physically. He is present in the emblems. Um, and I, I disagree with that view. I think that these represent Christ. But I mean, if something represents Jesus, how important is that? Okay. So the number one criticism is like, well, that's just, you've, you've made it weak sauce. I'm like, no, I mean, my wedding ring's not weak, weak sauce. Right. So this is neither. Um, uh, now what would be my argument for that? Um, I mean, that's going to be a long and drawn out argument. I, I think that the chief passage is John six where people say, Hey, let's just look at it real quick. This is probably the chief passage. It's a long chapter and it's kind of involved to get into all the details, but I'll skim a couple things. Um, okay. Jesus says in verse 47, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Okay. Keep that in mind. Whoever believes has eternal life. Then he says, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, that's Jesus, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So this is, this is a passage where it's like, hey, Jesus is telling you, you got to physically eat him. And the only way that can be achieved, because he does not have enough physical body of Jesus for everyone to do that with, is through communion, where it, at least on the Catholic view, there's a turning, it turns into Jesus, right? Um, and you have a, these are, it's weird, because you have like, Arist I think it's Aristotelian philosophy, there's accidents and substance, and it's a way of viewing the world that's very foreign to most of us, where you, you're like, well, the, it really is the meat and of, of Jesus's body, but it's but it looks like it has the accidents of the of the bread. That gets confusing. 
All right, verse 52. Uh, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, and he just doubles down, which Jesus often does this when people are trying to challenge him. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Do you know there was this big debate in around the time of the Council of Trent about um, whether you had to have the 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 wine at communion or just the the bread because they didn't they thought it was so sacred they started worshiping the communion cup and everything that they that it was so sacred that they didn't want the lay people to take a chance of spilling a drop right it's so sacred because it's the literal blood of Jesus so the lay people would only take the bread and so this was came up in the council of trent like there this is in roman catholicism do we is that okay and they concluded hey as long if you eat the flesh, you have also had the blood. If you have either one of the emblems, you get the whole thing. And that was how they resolved that issue. I don't know. I'm just sharing random things with you today. Um, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay. Um, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I'm going to say so far there's a connection to belief. He goes, whoever believes in me, and then he also says, I'm the bread of life, and whoever eats my flesh and drink my, drinks my blood. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, so I live because the Father, um, because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So this caused some problems. Um, and verse 60, many of the disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it, right? In Jewish mentality, like this is cannibalism. Um, this is confusing. The, the, you, you can't eat people. <laughs> this, is, this is absolutely against the law and against their sensibilities. And he had said in such a, a tough way, it's like, how are, how, how are people going to receive this, Jesus? Verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? We get here the resurrection and the ascension of this of Jesus as the way of proving he was right. All of his all of his claims, no matter how hard you think they were, they were true. You should accept them. Then he says, "It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe." This is Jesus' final commentary on the entire section. And in this, in this passage, he's saying that the flesh doesn't help. The spirit gives life. The words that he spoke are spirit and life. How do I get life? Ultimately, it's not going to be through the flesh. Jesus' body will go on the cross and die for me. And by believing in him, I partake of the bread. By believing that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Now, communion symbolizes that. But that's not saying you have to have communion to be saved. It's not saying that. We have examples of people who were saved and they didn't have communion. Whereas if you take Jesus, John 6, here's another piece of argumentation there. Who, um, uh, If you take John 6, which says, hey, you have to do this or you can't be saved. But there's lots of people in scripture that were saved before they ever had communion. If they ever even had it. We also have the fact that in John, Jesus is laboring to tell people, hey, here's bread. But don't labor for bread which perishes. Hey, give us more bread now, man. I'm going to give you myself. And you need to just believe in me. This is the work of God. Believe in the one whom he sent, right? That's that's a theme in John. We have another point in John. In the Gospel of John, do you know communion never happens? 
We don't even have a commune moment in the gospel of John. If there was, it would, it would at least be easier to try to connect that to Jesus's words in John six. So my point is Jesus's words in John six, while they relate to communion, they reflect on communion in a sense. They're not directly about communion. They're about Jesus being the bread of life like Moses provided the manna from heaven. It's about a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, how he offers his life for us, and the method we are saved is through belief. And though he said it in a way that drove many away, that was part of the the testing that his true disciples went through. He then clarified in John 6, 63 and 64, that he was talking um, about how the spirit gives life and the flesh profits nothing. I hope that the, those things those things answer. What I'm suggesting here is this is a symbolic view. This is a symbolic view. And the chief passage used to promote communion as um, either the Lutheran or the Catholic view, I think, doesn't. Um, yeah. Ryan Little says, your 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 6 teaching said that Abigail's story was the only valid exception for not submitting to husbands. Why was life-threatening situations the lens in which you interpreted her example? Okay, um, well, for one thing, I'm, I'm actually going to be digging into some more of this stuff soon as I do my women in ministry study. Monday, I'm starting it, and I'm going to be teaching on a regular basis, finally again, <laughs> as I go through these things. I've, I've prepared the content, spent ridiculous amounts of time working on it for months even, um, but now I'm ready to share it. So I'll be going over some of these issues. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head how I worded it. Um, let me respond to how you've worded it. In my teaching, you claim I said, Abigail's story is the only valid exception for not submitting to husbands, which is life-threatening examples. I, I don't think, I I don't agree with that. Look, if I did say that, I don't think I did. But if I'm wrong, Ryan, if, if I did say that in First Peter, I didn't mean to. Um, <laughs> um, I think that um, when there is harm and threat to uh, to a woman or her family or her household, that there can be a valid exception for her going against her husband's will, even in Abigail's case, secretly doing things she knew her husband didn't want her to do in order to save their lives. Does it have to be life-threatening? Um, no, I mean, it, it, could be, it could be harm. The danger with trying to draw lines, though, is that it's, life is so messy and complicated that it's difficult to like create these little cute answers that give us the clarity to know, is that enough potential harm? Is that too much? Do I, where do I draw the line? And so I don't try to draw that line um, because I don't want to encourage a, a person to rebel against something because they're going to inflate. Oh, well, it was a verbal abuse. And sometimes you're like, well, your, your, your degree of what you call abuse is really low. And I also don't want to cause a woman who is being truly abused to just continue to like feed into that and feel like she just has to submit to that. And so I don't want to try to draw those lines. Um, so yeah, I would disagree. The story of Abigail um, does give us an example of not submitting to a husband in a life-threatening situation, which is a good example. Um, but that doesn't mean it's like it, you have to literally be in danger of dying in order to not submit to the husband. I, I think that there's several other options that are there. And I think I talk about them in that video. So maybe maybe consider listening to that one again. Um, C. Sites says, I find myself feeling paranoid and anxious because I'm scared to fall into sin. I'm no longer in bondage to sin, but I feel like the fear of sin can hold me captive. Is that fear of sin biblical? 
I guess what I would, what I wish I could do with you see sites is like, ask you what you're afraid of more specifically. Um, is it like, I'm afraid that I'll sin again. Um, I mean, to some degree that could be a healthy fear because it's a re it's a real situation for you. But I guess you might ask yourself, is this fear motivating me and moving me towards good? Or is it, you say it's holding me captive. What do you mean? Right? Is it, um, is my fear of sin having it where I, I won't, I won't do things for the Lord. Well, what if I blow it? What if I blow it? And it's paralyzing you from doing good. So healthy fear keeps us from doing wrong things or unwise things. Unhealthy fear keeps us from doing right things or good things. And that's what I would use to try to determine it. Cause all fear isn't bad. The question is, is my fear keeping me from doing good? Then it's bad and I won't listen to it. And the more I don't listen to it, the lower, the smaller it'll become. Is my fear keeping me from doing something bad, something inappropriate? Then I, I want to listen to that. That's a healthy, that's a healthy fear. So yeah, I, I hope that helps, man. Um, yeah, just, you know, ask yourself, is the thing I'm doing, the, the thing I'm worried about doing, is it a good thing? Then go do it. Um, the word was God has a question says, Hey, Pastor Mike, I struggle with pride. I hate that. Even with a past as filthy as mine that I've been forgiven for, I still catch myself looking at other people sideways. How can I love more? Um, when I deal with pride, the two, which, which has happened a couple times in my life. <laughs> um, here's a, a few observations I have about pride. One, um, I'm like the last to notice it. It's, it's, it's other people can notice it. Like my wife would notice before I would, because pride never announces itself to you, but it announces itself to everyone else. So listen to others, listen to others. If, if they start to tell you like, Hey, and give them permission, like, Hey, you can tell me if you think I'm dealing with a pride issue. I want to hear you on that. And even if they seem unrealistic or if they seem like they're, they're wrong when they tell you just pause and really consider that maybe maybe that's the case. Um, in my experience as well, whenever I think I might be proud, I usually am. <laughs> so if I'm even like, I feel like maybe I'm being a little, is that pride? It's like an hour later or a day later, I go, yeah, that was pride. Like then I have clarity, but again, it never announces itself to me. So to be really careful. What do I do if I am being proud? Well, I remind myself of my forgiveness in Christ and the many, many, many sins that I have been forgiven and washed from as a Christian and the many mistakes I've made. And the older you get, the easier this, this is, or the harder if your heart gets harder, but you have more to pull from. You're like, look at so many problems and issues and mistakes and failures. Um, it's not that hard for me to get humble in that regard. And I look at the grace of God and I'm just like, I'm an undeserved sinner forgiven by the kindness and grace of Christ. So then when I look at others, why am I surprised to see the same thing? I mean, it doesn't make it okay if, if they're doing the same things, but, but it keeps me from measuring myself by them. And actually here's a, I'll give you a verse on this that I, nobody ever quotes, but I often use, um, for myself. Let me see if I can find the, t the exact spot. Yeah, here it is. Um, second Corinthians 10, 12. Okay. So <laughs> this is okay. It's weird. It's, it's strangely worded, but I want you to really try to understand this passage. Paul's talking about other apostles and how there was this competition going on about who was like 
the best. And I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, that kind of thing. But look at his attitude. He goes, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. I love this verse. It's 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 clunky in English. I get that, but it's it's clunky on purpose. I think because the emphasis is themselves. When you class yourself or compare yourself with other people, you're already entering into this looking at people sideways thing. Like just just don't stop measuring yourself by other people. This is not. Let me just be real clear. This is not a feel good self help tip. This is a watch out for your horrible pride that will ruin you and your friends and your family and your witness. Don't measure yourself by others. This is not so that you'll think, I could feel good about me. No, stop. Stop feeling about you. <laughs> that's, that's the advice. Here, just don't. All that matters is your faithfulness in Christ and God's going to judge that one day. And so just put it on the shelf and don't worry about measuring yourself. So look at how it's worded. We dare not. We dare not. It would be dangerous if I was to even class myself with others. Where do I rank near them? Or compare ourselves, especially with who? With people who what? Commend themselves. People who are about being puffed up and feeling good about themselves. Like Instagram basically, right? But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. What is the chief error they're making? Their standards are themselves or other people in their circle that they're looking at. This standard is far too low for any Christian to have, and this is why we get proud. When I compare myself to other, maybe even other pastors I know, maybe other Christians I know, other family members I know, and I compare myself among them, I can find ways to like, you know, consider myself better than worse or, or, or vice versa. But to a Christian, the only standard to measure yourself against is Jesus. And for you, when you know the word was God, your question about pride, when you measure yourself by Jesus, you cannot help but be humbled. His incredible love and graciousness, his perfect holiness and faithfulness, his selflessness towards others, his perfection and goodness in every step of the way, his wisdom and his knowledge and his patience. And you, I mean, you go on and on. Christian, compare yourself to Jesus and you will always be humble. <laughs> All right, number 12, Judah Matthews has a question. Hey, Judah. Um, about James 4, verses 13 through 17, the conclusion in verse 17 seems unrelated to verses 13 through 16. I don't see how it relates specifically to not boasting about tomorrow. Is it just a general statement that could be said after any command? All right, let's look at James with that in mind. Does verse 17, is it connected somehow to the previous four verses? So James... Um, verse chapter four, verse 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you, Judah. Like I go, okay, these, this feels like a different issue we're dealing with here. Um, 
you know, here we're talking about boasting and the way we treat tomorrow. It's, it's okay to make plans, guys. You can make plans, but just realize that you're not totally in control. And ultimately, you know, if God wills, we'll live and we'll do this. But I don't want to be arrogant about my life and my plans and ignorant of God's ultimate control. But what's the therefore, therefore? That's the question. This is what Bible teachers always say. If you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. And it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, and if I don't see an answer in the immediate context, um, the two options are, well, I reread it, rethink about it, try to figure out how this connects to that. Or I back up and I look at the more broad context, right? So I look at more broad context and I look at James is dealing with a whole lot of different issues, right? He's dealing with all kinds of issues. He's dealing with the, the way we use our tongue. He deals with um, what real wisdom is versus what we think is wisdom and how we should be without partiality and without hypocrisy and peacemakers. Um, we, we, when we pray, we should not do it to obtain our carnal desires, but we should pray for the glory of God. We should not be friends with the world, but be enemies of God. Um, so he's just like a laundry list of a bunch of things, right? He talks about how humility, I'm looking at the, uh, headline here in the new King James, humility cures worldliness. So it's, you know, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, all these things, um, not judging your brother in, in the wrong way, not boasting about tomorrow. It's possible that the therefore in verse 17 is meant to summarize a whole bunch of content that he's shared. And so what he, what James has done is he's like, look, I've talked about this and this and this and this and this and this. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Hey guys, I've tried to open your eyes to a bunch of areas where you may be dealing with sin. And now I'm reminding you, if you know what you should do, that's good. And you don't, that's sin. And that, so I would look at it as, as encompassing a larger section that seems to let the, therefore, you know, be more easily understood as to what it's there for. All right. Enough with that joke. Let's go to question number 13. Justin Baldwin says, hi, pastor Mike. Um, okay. Hi, pastor Mike. I struggle. Oh, oops, I lost you. Justin. All right. Hi, pastor Mike. I have multiple questions that start with hi, pastor Mike. So I was like, huh? Um, when we pray in tongues in private prayer time, is this a heavenly language or earthly language? Thank you for all you do to help us think biblically. Um, well, let me give you the quick answer because of where we're at in time here today. Um, I don't think I have an answer for you because I think that I'll say, let me say 18 things real quick. All right. First, um, Privately, when you're praying in tongues, I think sometimes people are speaking in a real language that God's giving them. And other times they're just groaning and making noises unto the Lord and God knows their heart. I think Romans 8 supports this. I have a study on it in my Romans series where I talk about how it's okay to just groan your heart out to God and just kind of emote to him um, with noises. That doesn't have to be in an, in, a, in an actual tongue. That doesn't mean it's wrong. God, you know, the Holy Spirit intercedes, right, with groans that words cannot express when we don't know how to pray as we ought. And that's a good thing. Um, also, it could actually be a tongue. Okay, well, if it's tongue, it could be any language. Like, where's the? why is there a limit on God that there that it would be this kind of language versus that kind? It could be any kind of language if it's really a divinely given tongue. Um, I think I think maybe for many people who think they're speaking in tongues are just groaning and moaning to the Lord and pouring their hearts out, which doesn't make it evil. It just makes it a different category than they're thinking it is. But when there's like a real language involved, it could be any language. Now, are there such things as tongues of angels? Yeah. I mean, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13. He goes, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I'm a, a clinging gong, 
It's like a like a drum symbol you just whack in for no reason. It's annoying. <laughs> it's not helpful. So Paul talks about tongues of men and angels as though there's a potential to speak in them. But here's why I don't take that to mean that you actually are possibly speaking or likely speaking with tongues of men and angels. Because everything that Paul talks about in this passage where we, we actually get a discussion of tongues of angels, when we um, when we get this, it's, there's, it's all exaggerations. It's all hyperbole. It's all things that Paul doesn't think are normal, right? People speaking with tongues of men and angels, that's something that it seems isn't normal. Just like having the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. I mean, I don't know anyone. Nobody has that kind of thing. Because later Paul even says in, in Corinthians, he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. So he's, he's offering a hypothetical. Hey, even if you could do that, it wouldn't matter if you didn't have love. And if you had all face, you could remove mountains, but didn't have love, you're nothing. And the implication is you, you don't just walk around casting mountains down, that there's an illustration there, a point Jesus is making, but it's not like a typical Christian thing that is normal. Um, so I'm suggesting here that there's at least a chance he's just using a hyperbolic thing. Um, some people might even say that the tongues of angels here represents messengers, people who are guests at your church, because angel can be used in flexible ways. That word can also mean messenger in the Greek. And so you're, the tongue of angels, oh, there's a guest at my church and, I, and maybe they're from whatever, France, and I spoke in French and they heard it in their own language. But I, I think that um, that doesn't work because it's countered with tongues of men because those would still be tongues of men. So angels means angelic languages. Is it at least feasible that you're speaking with an angelic language? Yes, feasible. Is it likely? Um, I can't really answer that question. There's, There you go. <laughs> those are my thoughts. Uh, Jules W says, hi, Mike, I've watched both of your videos on the Old Testament law. I get that we don't need to keep the law as we are now under grace. So how do I understand 1 Corinthians 6, 9, which says adulterers won't inherit the kingdom? Great question. All right. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, a lot could be said about this, but I'll focus on your question about the law, how it relates to the law. Uh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, this is the umbrella term is the unrighteous. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He goes, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will, inher will inherit the kingdom of God. This list encompasses a lot of Christians. I have to face that. It's intimidating to me too. I want to I want to find a way around it. I'm I'm just being honest about my own motives here. Especially even as a pastor, I, I want to find a way around this passage, so that I don't have to tell somebody that if if they're a thief, they're just not going to inherit the kingdom of God or covetous, which is a heart issue. I mean, I guess it could relate to the to the outward expressions of the covetousness, you know. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't even know someone was covetous. But this is what Paul starts with. He goes, "Don't be deceived." Now, whenever the Bible tells me don't be deceived, I assume it's there because I'm inclined to deceive myself on that issue. So this is heavy stuff. I am not here suggesting that you um, earn your way to heaven by not fornicating or committing idolatry or adultery or something like that, that it's like an, an earned salvation. But a true and genuine obedience, uh, true and genuine faith in Christ leads to obedience to Jesus. Paul seems to be describing worldly people People of the world who are living these lifestyles, they're not going to be inheriting the kingdom of God. So Christian, if you are continuing to live that same worldly lifestyle, 
Are you really a Christian? This is a question I don't know how to get around biblically. You will not get saved when you live a better life. No, no. You will live a better life when you get saved. Really, really trust in Christ, repent, and follow him. When these things are lifestyles, they're signs that you you look a lot like the kind of people that aren't saved. So I don't just go around and say, "Oh, you 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 uh, you have problems with drunkenness and you claim to follow Jesus and it looks it looks real in a lot of ways." I don't say you're not going to inherit the kingdom. No, I, I think it's a little different than that. I think it's, "Hey, drunkards don't inherit the kingdom, and you are engaging in that behavior. I'm now uncertain about you." So I don't tell people, "Oh, you're you're just definitely not Christian." I just tell them, "You're you're doing the kind of thing that is of those." Groups of people who aren't inheriting the kingdom, that's scary. And it should be scary. Verse 11, Paul goes on to say, And such were some of you, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So it's 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 a call to Christians to take seriously sin issues and to follow Christ. Now, how does that relate to the Old Testament law? Um, well, adultery, for instance, adultery is in the law. But when I say we're not under the law, I do not mean... Whatever the law says, you can just ignore it. I don't mean whatever morals you find in the law, they don't count anymore. I mean you're not under the law. There are moral truths that are in the law that are overarching truths that God applies to all people, and there are truths that are explicit just to the law. And you've got to read the, read the Old Testament to understand the difference. So, yes, don't commit adultery. That's part of the law. But that's also what God expects of all people. And I think that that I, I try to talk about that in that series. You might check it out again sometime because I know it's information overload. I give you tons of data in that two-part series on how to understand the Old Testament law. You guys can also find it on BibleThinker.org. You can check it for a playlist on my YouTube channel. It's just two videos, how to understand the Old Testament law. This, and I'll put a link to it below as well. And maybe a, a mod can put how to understand the Old Testament law, that series in the live chat as well. Um, I, I recommend checking out it again because I do think I cover those issues. But it's a lot to take in. Okay, I know. I, I, that's how I teach. It's tons of data all at once, but that's why you can rewatch stuff. Hey, and it's all free. So it's, you know, it costs the same the second time. All right. Jules W says, hi, Mike. I've watched. Oh, I already did that one. I, I did it again. I skipped too. So verse, this is question 14. Sarah, I'm sorry. I'm making your job hard today. Wolpack says, hi, Mike and Moxie, who she's, she's off somewhere else in the house right now. Sorry. Uh, I'm a fast reader and I get distracted a lot. This affects my Bible reading slash study time. Any tips or advice? Thank you. Um, uh, you, I, I make, you can make rules for yourself. Like I'm not going to do anything else until I read this much, right? Like it's this little rule. Like you're, you're reading and you're like finding your mind wandering. You stop and you go, no, no, I'm going to read to that point or to that page or to the end of this thing, um, before I do anything else. Uh, another thing you can do is take notes. Taking notes is a massively good way to improve your reading comprehension level because taking notes requires you to read. And then summarize what you've read, which means you're forcing your brain to comprehend it on a deeper level as you restate what you just read with fewer words. That's powerful. Underlining can help too, but I think having to take notes where you restate some of the points of what you just read, really powerful. I also think it can help too if, if reading uh, itself is distracting is um, listen to the Bible. I was listening to the book of Acts today, just listening to it, you know. Um, I, I love listening to the scriptures, reading to all of those are great. Another thing that can help is to perhaps follow along with a teacher who's teaching through a book of the Bible you're reading. 
And that can be another way to engage your attention more on those passages. So th these are some, some helpful things that you might consider. Number 16, B design says, how do I overcome fear of war? Thinking that the Ukrainian Russian conflict will affect my country too. I live in Europe. I know in theory that God is in control, but my heart is still afraid. God bless. Um, it's okay that you're afraid. Totally okay. Um, when, when I, I used to have like a, a phobia of earthquakes, um, and, and I'm going to apply this to the best I can. I'm not paralleling and saying like your fear of war is the same as my phobia of earthquakes from when I was a kid, but I live in California and, um, uh, in California, we've had a lot of serious earthquakes, not that much recently actually, but when I was young, when I was a kid, we had a lot more. And there's always talk of like, is this the big one? Is the big one coming? And that totally freaked me out when I was a kid. And I carried this into my adulthood. And I realized it one time um, as an adult when I was getting married. And we were sitting at a friend's house and an earthquake started happening. And I like grabbed my wife's hand and was like, let's get out of the building because I thought we were safer outside. And um, then I left the building and she just didn't follow because she was a terrible wife. No, she didn't even, I didn't even know what I was grabbing her hand for. She didn't even know. Like, I was just like, come on. And it was just too quick for her to think, think what was going on. And I, I like step outside. And then I was standing there for a brief moment alone outside without my wife. And I thought I have a problem. <laughs> like that was wrong. Um, and so here's what I did that. I don't know if this might help you. Well, let me tell you what I didn't do first. Here's what I didn't do. I didn't tell myself it won't happen. An earthquake won't happen that will bury me in rubble where I slowly starve to death, right? And dehydrate and die. Where I have like my arms crushed and pinned beneath rubble. Like that That won't happen. I never told myself that because that's that's not honest. It's not real. And I can't tell you that, that war won't happen. I don't know what'll happen. That's the problem. I just don't know. But what I started doing was every time I had a, a sense of fear about an earthquake, I would, I would say, Lord... Even if it happens, even if the worst I can think of happens, I still trust you. And this was like my silent prayer or even out loud prayer hundreds and hundreds of times. And I would pray this every time I thought of the fear, the thing I was scared of, if the worst happens, if the worst happens, if that worst thing happens. And I thought, I still trust you, Lord. If I'm pinned under rubble and my arms are crushed and I can't cry out and I'm dying and bleeding and dehydrating, I still trust you. Um, I'm not kidding that I'm not phobic of earthquakes anymore. Now, I, I didn't expect that. I didn't know that that would happen, but I'm like literally not phobic of earthquakes. Like it's just not a thing. I mean, not like I don't get startled or something if there's an earthquake, but I just, that fear that was there is is just dissipated. And there's only now like a healthy awareness of the potential danger of an earthquake. So what worked for me was facing the thing I was scared of and saying that I would trust God in even in the midst of that even in the midst of that. And I think that that is consistent with a lot of what I read in the book of Psalms, right? Right. Even though the, the, the mountains, uh, fail, the hills give way, right? Yet I'm going to continue to trust in God that there's this attitude of yet, even in that, I will still trust you, God, right? This is what Job did when the one good thing he did was he was like, blessed be the name of the Lord. So, um, I have no commentary on the potential of war. I don't know anything about it. I just think I trust you, God. I don't trust the circumstance. I don't trust the, the dangers. I trust you. I trust you. And I know that my ultimate hope 
it's, it's unfading. It cannot be taken away. My security in Christ and my eternal joys and glory in heaven, they far outweigh any of the suffering I go through today. Yeah, I hope that helps. Uh, I love Wayne's world says, how do I learn God's will for major life decisions like buying a pet or when and where to move or who I should marry or if I should even get married? How do I know if it's from God or my own desire? Um, I love Wayne's world. I'm going to say something that is going to be a little bit strong. Okay. And I hope know this. I'm not, um, don't take it. Don't take it personal. If I say this kind of strong, uh, cause it's, I'm not saying it, assuming anything about you. I'm saying it because of my own experience with my own understanding of discerning God's will that I've developed over the years. Um, the primary way in which you know God's will for your life is not how you feel or what you perceive in within yourself. It's just not. Um, the primary way in which you know God's will for some, many of these decisions you're making is through scripture and their general principles and then you make a choice. And this is something that took me a while to get to, right? When I got married, I did not have a promise from God that it would go well. But I had principles that this was a godly woman who respected me, who supported me, whom I loved very much, and who I thought would be a good match. And I decided to marry her. God didn't tell me she was the one. I feel like I prayed and the Lord showed me she was a one. <laughs> Is that weird? I, I just, I mean, once you get married, they're the one. I don't care if they were the wrong one. Now they're the one. They're the right one now because you're married. So get over it. You know, this is what, that's what marriage is. Marriage is like, you're the one. That's what makes you the one. You don't find the one and marry him. You marry him and now they're the one. That's how that works. So when it comes to things like marriage, you have real choices to make. You may have five girls out there that you're thinking like, well, one of them looks pretty good. Maybe, you know, and maybe, maybe three of them are willing to, you know, consider being in a relationship with you. And so you look and you look at your interactions and you look at their character and you look at your character and you look at the way that, that you try to project forward what that would be like. And you're going to be wrong. You're going to get married. There's going to be a bunch of stuff you didn't expect and things you didn't know about them or yourself. But that's just what you do. And then you move forward and you, and you just realize, as a Christian, I cannot expect God to tell me the best possible outcome all the time. Like, oh, take this job because you know, 10, 20 years down the road, it'll just be the best thing ever. And it's just like, I don't think that God's plans are tailored for my success. They're tailored for his ultimate will and glory. And so I just have to make good choices. Now, God might guide you in getting a pet, but most likely you're just going to get a pet. And maybe the Lord will guide you through his word on how you conduct yourself with your pet. Like the proverb says, a righteous man regards the life of his animal. Right, that you 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 steward well that responsibility, but I just think that Christians, we many of us, like myself at a younger age, I just thought I wasn't supposed. I didn't want to make decisions. I wanted God to show me the best choice so that I could have His like, you know, guarantee that it would go well. And I just slowly learned that this is this is a crippling thing for us. We fail to really analyze our situation and make a wise choice, like using the Book of Proverbs and using our understanding to the best of our knowledge, and realize. I don't have a guarantee of success, but what I can do is make wise choices and then act faithfully unto Christ in the life I live. And this is a, a brilliant and beautiful and wonderful thing. Now, that being said, I'm not at all opposed to God showing you, go get this job. And he shows you, but don't be worried if he doesn't. Just don't make the mistake. Okay. In the book of Judges, Joshua makes this uh, this deal with the Gibeonites. He's not supposed to make a deal with them. 
and they deceive him into making the deal. But it, there's this commentary in Judges about it. It says that Joshua didn't pray. He didn't ask God. And the implication is God would have told him. That, that was that one moment where he, would have, he was going to be deceived and God would have showed him divinely. I think that make sure you pray over these choices, but don't expect that God has to show you what to choose. It's okay for you to make a choice. Just don't neglect prayer and try to make it biblical the best of your ability. Major life decisions, yeah. Who you should marry. Well, a Christian. That's that's clear in scripture. So there you go. You've already eliminated a lot of the world. <laughs> you know? Uh, <clears throat> preferably someone who who's, you know, loves you, is going to support you, is going to be committed to you and, and to Christ and things like that. So yeah. All right, number 18. This is from Christine who says, in a previous Mark series video, you mentioned that you don't believe Jesus descended into hell after dying on the cross. If he didn't descend into hell, where did he go and what did he do? Thanks. Um, well, I so Christine, this might be because I just believe that hell doesn't, nobody's in hell right now. And so hell and like Hades, um, Gehenna and, and the, the abyss, these are all different places in scripture, but we just make them all the same thing when we say hell. Hell is that final destination for the unsaved and for Satan and his fallen angels. Hell is that final place where they're cast. Nobody's there yet. That's a distant future reality. So why would Jesus go there? Um, the idea then that some people have is that Jesus <clears throat> descended into hell, that future judgment location where he physically suffered for a long period of time. And uh, for three days, ultimately. And he was suffering and suffering and suffering. Not, like they think maybe the cross wasn't enough and that he had to suffer there too. It's a popular teaching in some circles, especially the more hyper-charismatic. Um, I think that, and I get into this in the first Peter videos, but I think that when Jesus, you know, during that time, he preached to the spirits in prison. That's not he suffered. I'll just, let me take you guys to the passage and we'll just briefly look at it and I won't be able to give you full commentary. Um but it's in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Okay. It says that Christ once suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So his death and resurrection are in view here. In which, in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So in the spirit... Jesus proclaimed something to spirits in prison. He's doing preaching here. He's not suffering for my sins in hell. He's preaching to some spirits in prison. Well, spirits aren't in hell. Nothing's in hell, not in the actual hell. So this is something else um, because they formerly did not obey. And then the debate that I get into in the first Peter series is who are these spirits? Are they the spirits of human beings who disobeyed God? I'll leave the scripture on the screen for a minute here. Are, are they human beings who were disobedient during the days of Noah? Are they angelic beings like the Nephilim type stuff that was going on there? Um, what are they? And I get into that in detail in the video series, the first Peter series. You guys could check that out. And all right, we'll go to the next question. Number 19, inspired to craft Amanda says, how does a wife whose husband hates church Approach the issue when he convinces the kids, five and six years old, that they can just stay home with him, respectfully yet firm that they are coming to church. Help. Um, I don't know, Amanda. I kind of feel like another wife would be a much better, you know, person because someone who's like actually living through this and going through it, you know. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how to navigate that issue. How do you convince your husband um, 
Yeah, man, Amanda, I, I'm. That's a tough one. That's a truly tough one. I, I think I just want to sit and think about it a lot more. Talk to some women who've been through the issues there. Tell you what, um, right now there's got to be some ladies listening who have some good advice for Amanda. So why don't you do is put a comment and you put Amanda, right, for the first word of your comment and then give your thoughts on how she can do this. Let's help Amanda out a little bit. Uh, but God, God give you wisdom. God help you. I'm sorry your husband's being stupid. <laughs> don't tell him I said that. <laughs> um, Autumn Double says, how do I have the appropriate attitude towards the seriousness of sin? I fear I lack it, which is displeasing to the Lord. Um, look at the cross. When I want to see how serious sin is, I look at what it cost Jesus. He came, he lived a perfect life, but he died on the cross for my sin. And this blows my mind. Like in your mind right now, I want you to visualize, if you will, Jesus being nailed to a cross, covered in blood, crying out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Knowing that the answer is because that's how serious sin is. To me, um, I feel there's things we never appreciate as Christians, this side of heaven. I never appreciate how bad sin is. I never appreciate how good God is. I never appreciate how holy he is, how much he loves me. But I also don't appreciate his judgment. This is why so many Christians have a hard time with God judging people or bringing condemnation and judgment onto the earth in the form of violence and death in the Old Testament. We just literally don't appreciate how bad sin is, how holy God is. And my encouragement for this is that in Psalm 19, uh, uh, Revelation 19, there's a song we sing where God is judging and we're crying hallelujah in response to his judgments. Now, the psalmist understood this a little bit, right? When it says, true and righteous are your judgments, this is in the Psalms, God's judgments themselves, his condemnation of different things and his behaviors of his bringing down the, the iron hand, so to speak, that these are righteous things, it's good, it's true and righteous, that for God to judge less would actually be somehow wrong. What I'm suggesting here is my compass for understanding, my discernment for understanding the holiness of God, the wickedness of sin, and the rightness of judgment is just all blurry and messed up for the same reason that prisoners in jail all agree that the real punks are the guards, right? The real losers are is, is, the, is the warden and the guards, and they're the real bad guys. I ain't so bad. Every group of bad people thinks they're not bad, and that describes all of humanity. <laughs> so... So look to the cross, look to what God has said, and recognize this is how bad sin is. Jesus died on the cross for it. And um, this is not to condemn, because Jesus' whole death on the cross is to, is to save, is to free us from condemnation. It's to simply be aware that in, in my most spiritually aware moment, when I realize sin is really bad, I'm still probably only partly grasping the truth. In my most spiritually aware moment, when I realize God is holy, I'm probably still just scratching the surface. It, it's kind of like in Job 28, where there's this statement about creation declaring God's glory. And there's this beautiful phrase where he says, but these are, it, it talks about God making the clouds. God does this and this and this. And then it just says, but these are merely the edges of your ways. And I, I love it because the idea is that when I look at the skies and the stars and the planets, and I look at the world and I go, wow, God is so glorious. 
It's, it's amazing. And then this passage in Job's like, but that's just like the edges of his ways. It's like you've just barely glimpsed a piece of his incredible glory. I would say that that edges analogy is true about God's holiness and about my sinfulness as well. All right, you guys, this has been uh, 20 questions. We're, I think, I think, I think we're all done. And I will be with you Monday, Monday at 1 p.m. I'm getting into the Women in Ministry series. I can't wait to get into this with you guys. I've spent months preparing for the topic of women in ministry. I'm going to cover everything. It's going to be a whole series, probably 10 videos approximately. That's what I've got laid out in my head here and in my notes. And I'm going to be summarizing tons of data, looking at it, it. I won't repeat anything throughout the series. It's going to be different passages of scripture, different debates. You'll hear from the scholars. You will hear from both sides and hopefully you can make an informed decision and um and i i don't <clears throat> no surprises here i am more firmly in the complementarian camp than ever before but i'm less complementarian at the same time i'm more of a soft complementarian <laughs> but i'm more firmly as i think that the egalitarian arguments the arguments for no differences in roles in churches while they're widely growing while so many churches feel that way I think that they are demonstrably false. And we're going to look at those arguments. Uh, they, the badness of the egalitarian arguments made me more complementarian than I was before. Even though I didn't want to be. All right, so that's your little preview. We'll talk about that next, uh, this coming Monday in three days. All right, Lord bless you guys. Keep you, make his face to shine upon you. Lift your eyes up to heaven. Trust in him. And when all else fails, you just trust in the character of God's goodness. And... He'll get you through.